Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the humble lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is Murder Coaster. Here is a tale of horror and degradation so brutal it makes the brain squirm and the soul bleed. But you will also find a tale of ancient mysticism, magic, and medicine. It is a tale of the American West and its violent and infamous history. It is a tale of two men, one evil, one good, one an outlaw, the other wearing the badge of a lawman, one an escaped killer, the other an agent of the state. But both these men will use ancient Native American medicine, magic, and rituals to further their cause. Both will go deep into the forest to commune with nature and seek the help of medicine men, searching for ancient mystical powers to guide them as one hunts for justice and the other flees from his wicked and horrific crimes, resulting in the largest manhunt the Southwest has ever seen. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the myth, the lore, and the magic of the 1977 Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. In order to tell this tale, we need to talk about the Cherokee, particularly the Oklahoma Cherokee. But before we begin, we just want to point out that we here at Murder Coaster are not historians or anthropologists nor are we scholars of Native American culture. So, if we get anything wrong, we apologize now. And please forgive any mispronunciation. I know I, in particular, can definitely slaughter a word, but we're going to do our best. It's never intentional. It's thought by many that in ancient times, the Cherokees migrated down from the Great Lakes and into the Southeast, settling in the river valleys of what is now Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and Alabama. They lived in bark-roofed log cabins, cultivated corn and beans, made ceramics, hunted deer, bear, and elk. Flourishing there. By the time Europeans arrived, they were the largest Native American tribe in North America. Because they were friendly to trade with European settlers and began to adopt some cultural and technological practices, they became known as one of the so-called Five Civilized Tribes. George Washington referred to them as my beloved Cherokees, and near the beginning of his presidency, asserted a policy where they be treated with, quote, the great principles of justice and humanity. 
This policy resulted in the Treaty of Holston between the Cherokee Nation and the United States government in 1791. The treaty served as a declaration of peace, outlining the specific boundaries of Cherokee land and giving the tribe the right to enforce those boundaries and punish trespassers. How this treaty was broken and how the Cherokees ended up in Oklahoma is a brutal and infamous chapter in American history. And though it is complicated, it can be basically narrowed down to the state of Georgia and the Compact of 1802. In the Compact of 1802, the federal government agreed to extinguish the Cherokees' land title if Georgia would give the government their Western claims, which would become the states of Alabama and Mississippi. The government also promised to eventually make treaties to relocate the native tribes living within Georgia. But the Cherokees refused to move. And by the late 1820s, the territory of the Cherokee people lay almost entirely in northwestern Georgia, with small parts in Tennessee, Alabama, and North Carolina. An estimated 16,000 Cherokee people lived in this territory. Many Cherokee had completely assimilated into post-colonial life, becoming successful businessmen and landowners. Many even had slaves. Two of the most successful Cherokee businessmen, Major Ridge and John Ross, adopted a written constitution on July 26, 1827, declaring the Cherokee Nation to be a sovereign and independent nation. An election was held, and John Ross was elected principal chief and Major Ridge the speaker of the Cherokee National Council. These two men, Ross and Ridge, would become major players in what eventually would go down. So, in 1826, the Georgia legislature goes to President John Quincy Adams to negotiate a removal treaty. But Adams is a supporter of tribal sovereignty and doesn't really do anything. But then... In 1828, Old Hickory, Andrew Jackson, is elected president. Jackson is not a big supporter of Native American sovereign rights, to say the least, and, as we'll see, is a big supporter of their removal. Shortly after his inauguration, Jackson writes an open letter to the Southeastern Indian Nations basically telling them to start thinking about moving, and soon. So to get the ball rolling, the state of Georgia initiates a series of laws abolishing the independent government of the Cherokee and extending state law over their territory. Cherokee officials were forbidden to meet for legislative purposes. People of European descent including those married to Cherokee, were forbidden to live in Cherokee country without a state permit. 
and Cherokee were forbidden to testify in court cases involving European Americans. And then, in late 1829, gold was discovered, and the Georgia Gold Rush began, which intensely increased the determination to see the Cherokee removed. This was really the nail in the coffin for the Cherokee in Georgia. The Cherokee were forbidden to dig for gold, and Georgia authorized a survey of their lands to prepare for a lottery to distribute their land to whites. The lottery was held in 1832, and the state legislature stripped the Cherokee of all land other than their residences and adjoining improvements. When state judges intervened on behalf of the Cherokee, they were just harassed and later denied jurisdiction over such cases. Remember Major Ridge, Speaker of the Cherokee National Council? Well, he was no stranger to President Jackson. He'd fought beside then-General Jackson in the Creek War, and it was Jackson himself who awarded him the rank Major. He sends his well-educated son, John, who'd actually married a white woman, to Washington as head of a delegation to speak with Andrew Jackson, hoping to reason with him and pleading with him to intervene. Jackson refuses, and, seeing the writing on the wall for his people, Ridge leaves the White House in despair. On May 28th, 1830, President Andrew Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act, authorizing the president to grant unsettled lands west of the Mississippi in exchange for Indian lands within existing state borders. Since the draconian laws in Georgia have made it illegal for the Cherokee to conduct national business, The National Council, the legislative body of the Cherokee Nation, canceled the 1832 elections, declaring that current officials would stay in their offices until elections could be held. With the laws in Georgia becoming even worse, both Ridges, Major Ridge and his son John, came to believe that removal was inevitable and began to think the only hope was a treaty. In 1832, Old Hickory, Andrew Jackson, won in a landslide. And in December 1833, Ridge and the other Cherokees, who'd come to support leaving Georgia, formed the Treaty Party, which stood more or less opposed to Principal Chief Ross's National Party, which advocated resistance. This all leads to the Treaty of New Dakota. Tired of dealing with stubborn Principal Chief Ross and his National Party, in December 1835, Andrew Jackson sent a delegation to meet with Ridge and the Treaty Party in New Dakota, Georgia, where a treaty was agreed on and signed. Now, no more than 500 Cherokee backed the treaty's terms. And everybody involved in the treaty signing was aware of its illegitimacy. Major Ridge is quoted as saying, I have signed my death warrant 
And indeed, he had, for he, as well as his son, would later be assassinated by members of the National Party because of it. The Treaty of New Dakota states that in exchange for all Cherokee land east of the Mississippi River, the Cherokees would receive $5 million from the United States government, an additional $500,000 for educational funds, title in perpetuity to land in Indian Territory equal to that given up, and full compensation for all property left behind. The treaty included a clause to allow all Cherokees who so desired to remain and become citizens of the states in which they had resided on individual allotments of 160 acres of land. But that clause later was struck out by President Jackson. Of course it was, because he was old hickory. And old hickory was pretty much a dick, especially if you were a Native American. After news of the treaty became public, the officials of the Cherokee Nation from the National Party, which easily represented the largest majority of Cherokee, objected that they had not approved it and that the document was invalid. John Ross and the Cherokee National Council begged the Senate not to ratify the treaty and thereby invalidate it due to it not being negotiated by the legal representatives of the Cherokee Nation. But the Senate passed the measure in May 1836 by a single vote. And this leads us to the Cherokee expulsion, which is just a part of what has been come to be known as the Trail of Tears. The Cherokee have come to call the event Nunada Usunyi, the place where they cried. Another term is Trova Sa, our removal. While those who supported the treaty, like the Ridges, left willingly and early, most of the Cherokee, including Principal Chief John Ross, were outraged and unwilling to move. They didn't think the government would actually force them to leave the land that they'd called home for time immemorial. However, the U.S. Army was sent in, and forced removal began. The Cherokee were rounded up and herded violently into internment camps. Many Americans were outraged by it all especially the dubious legality of the treaty, and called on the government not to force the Cherokees to move. For example, on April 23, 1838, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a letter to President Martin Van Buren, who'd since replaced Jackson, urging him not to inflict so vast an outrage upon the Cherokee nation. Nevertheless, the Cherokee were forced to trek through Kentucky, Illinois, Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Missouri, and into what was called Indian Territory. The entire trip was roughly 2,200 miles. The Cherokee endured 
freezing temperatures, snowstorms, and pneumonia. The harshness of the trail and the intense weather conditions claimed around 4,000 of the 15,000 migrants. That's over a quarter of the population. They settled in what is now Oklahoma. The Indian Territory there, unlike other areas of North America that had received territorial status from Congress, didn't have a formal government. It was known as a place where laws were hard to enforce and therefore became an outlaw haven, particularly the Cookson Hills, which would go on to develop quite a reputation as a home to outlaws, bootleggers, and bank robbers. In the early days, Wild West days, outlaw gangs such as the Doolins, the James Brothers, Bell Star, and Cherokee Bill had all found those Ozark foothills well-suited to hiding from the law. And later Depression-era outlaws, such as Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, Wilbur Underhill, and Bonnie and Clyde, would also find sanctuary in hollers and forests of the Cookson Hills in Oklahoma. This outlaw culture became a part of the Cherokee community, their heritage, and even their spirituality, exemplified in people like Ezekiel Proctor. Zeke, as he was known, had walked the Trail of Tears from Georgia to Indian Territory when he was just seven years old. He went on to become a successful farmer and lawman before accidentally killing a woman in a gunfight and becoming a wanted man and outlaw. He was a member of the Kituwa Society, also known as the Nighthawk Society, referred to as Pin Indians because of how they wore two feathers pinned into a cross. The Kituwa are a medicine clan, and part of their beliefs involve a magical race of little people, basically fairies, known as the Yunwi Ju-si, who, if they found favor with you, would protect you. Zeke was known to always leave a saucer of milk outside his door before going to bed and offering to his little protectors. They claim this magic worked, for after a time on the run as an outlaw, and after an insane shootout that left 11 men dead, including eight U.S. Marshals, Zeke was acquitted of all charges, became a local hero, and went on to become a Cherokee senator, and was eventually hired on as a U.S. Marshal himself. Another example is the case of Ned Christie. Christie was a member of the Executive Council in the Cherokee Nation Senate and supported Cherokee so sovereignty and tried to resist white encroachment. But in 1887, he was falsely accused of killing a U.S. Marshal and spent five years on the run, becoming a folk hero and a symbol of resistance to the Cherokee people. 
His long and successful run as an outlaw was often attributed to magic. Christie's brother-in-law was a full-blooded Cherokee medicine man named Seed Wilson. The medicine man spent three weeks going through ancient Cherokee ceremonies, putting a spell on Christie so that he'd be unbeatable in battle and marshals wouldn't be able to capture him. This outlaw culture of the Cooks and Hills and the history of outlaws aided by medicine men and Cherokee mysticism was still very much alive up into the 1970s, as we'll soon see as we get into the infamous case of John Leroy Hart, another Cherokee fugitive protected by a medicine man and the lawman who used the same medicine and mysticism to hunt Hart down. But now, let us get into the horrific and brutal acts that have become known as the 1977 Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Camp Scott was a 410-acre Girl Scout retreat surrounded by open forest in Mays County, Oklahoma, originally opened in 1928. Throughout the summer, troops of Girl Scouts would arrive and spend two-week intervals at the camp. So, fellow freaks and dear listeners, let me set the scene for you, because this part is so terrifying and so much like a horror movie. I mean, it's literally straight out of Friday the 13th. In early spring of 1977, before the camp officially opened for the season, there was an on-site training session, which exactly what was happening in the original Friday the 13th film, if you remember. There was just all these young counselors getting to know each other, no campers. So during this on-site training session, very weird and creepy things had begun to happen. A strange man is seen wandering around with a clear plastic jug. Counselors report being followed by someone with a flashlight. A tent is found to have its flap slashed with a square cutout. That's some spooky shit, right? But get ready for this. A counselor at Camp Scott found her tent had been ransacked and torn apart. Whoever had done it had also eaten all her donuts. And inside the empty donut box was a handwritten note stating in capital letters, we are on a mission to th kill three girls in tent one. I see what you did there. <laughs> The counselor took the note to her boss, Barbara Olmstead, the spring session coordinator, but Barbara laughed it off as a sick joke and threw the note away. She threw the note away? Unbelievable. I guess uh, she doesn't watch horror movies or listen to true crime podcasts. Huh? I guess not. <laughs> also, no more donuts. Donuts and death threats. <laughs> 
By Sunday, June 12th, 1977, there were over 140 girls on the site, spread over 12 different campsites. Each campsite had seven camper tents and one counselor tent, and each campsite was named after a Native American tribe. And the youngest children were put in the Kiowa camp, the most isolated of the camps. And the youngest of the girls of that group, so the youngest of the youngest of the girls in the entire camp, were put in the furthest away section, past the showers of the most isolated part of the camp. What the hell? A lot of straight up like negligence going on at this camp. Why would you put the youngest campers in the most isolated part of the camp? And why would you put the youngest of them the furthest down from the counselor tent? I'm going to blame a lack of horror movies and a lack of true crime podcasts here. Well, good. Maybe our listeners will be will be yeah. safer for don't having put the youngest to girls us. the furthest away, listeners. It just doesn't make sense. I don't know that anyone out there is a camp counselor, but I was thinking maybe they thought they'd be quieter. They're like, oh, these girls will just go right to sleep and we'll put the troublemakers next to us. So we'll be able to just like go get them because apparently there was a bunch of troublemakers going around that night, like uh, making noise in the bathroom at one point. Someone had to come and tell them to go back to their tents. Okay, well, that's at least like somewhat of an explanation. I'll I'll accept that. Well, not when you see what happens because it doesn't work out for him. We wouldn't be talking about it if it had gone no. well. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about anything if it ended well. No, we can always <laughs> we could always have a cute coaster. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday, in June 12th, 1977, all the girls in the camp are curled up to sleep in their tents. And by the way, those tents were up off the ground on wooden foundations with wooden floors. And in the furthest reaches of the camp were the youngest of all the girls, Lori Lee Farmer, the youngest girl of the entire camp, who at only eight was already seen as a prodigy who had skipped the first grade. Doris Denise Milner, who went by Denise, she was 10, and she had saved the money for the camping trip selling Girl Scout cookies. Aww. Yep. She'd also been given an award in the fourth grade for having the best grades in the entire class. And the third girl was nine-year-old Michelle Heather Goose, or Gus, I don't know, who raised African violets. She loved to read, which always gets my heart because I'm a big reader, and was said to be very sweet and shy. I'm sure nothing bad will happen to them. All three of the girls were residents of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, a suburb of Tulsa. As night fell, a storm rolled in, but the sound of the pouring rain didn't obscure the strange sounds Counselor Carla Wilte heard emanating from the dark forest that night. Something reminiscent of a bullhorn, an inhuman language like no animal she had ever heard before. 
She went to investigate, creeping out into the dark, rain-drenched forest. And Carla, who was an experienced woodsman and trained counselor and knew the area very well, was suddenly overwhelmed with mind-numbing fear and terror. After quickly checking the tents, she hurried back to bed. Many people heard the guttural noise that night. One Girl Scout also heard a little girl crying for her mother. Fucking A, man. <laughs> Fuck. That's tough. It's, it's really tough. Oh. Yeah. Do you want me to read about how smart they were and cute? And they had pigtails, too. So you know. Yeah, thanks for setting that up so that you could <laughs> knock it down as hard as possible. Other counselors saw a strange dim light in the forest, though no one should have been out there. The strange light seemed to be moving, moving toward the Kiowa unit. Sometime during the night, tents were looted of purses and eyeglasses. A girl in tent six reported that at some point in the night, one of their tent flaps was lifted and a man stood there, shining a light at them, staring silently before just dropping the flap and moving on. But by dawn, the storm had passed and the rain was gone. And this is when Counselor Carla Wilte woke up and headed to the showers eager to get at that hot water early before it was all used up by the other campers. As she walked to the showers, something caught her eye, laying by the fork in the road, sleeping bags. She thought at first that someone had delivered stray luggage to the camp, and maybe they had fallen off the truck. So she went to investigate and that's when she saw the crumpled body of Denise Milner laying off the side of the road. Her face was battered. She was nude from the waist down, and her shirt was pulled up. Her hands were bound behind her with tape and cord, and the cord that had been used to strangle her was still around her neck. Horrified. Carla ran for help, in shock and panic, and not knowing who to contact. She first alerted the camp nurse. When authorities arrived, they would open the other sleeping bags to find the tiny corpses of Michelle and Lori in each of them. Everyone from the police to the coroner noted how small the bodies were, crumpled up the very bottom of those bags. Michelle had been bound, but Lori hadn't. Both girls had died of blunt force trauma to the back of the head. Because of the blood splatter in their tent, it is believed Michelle and Lori had been bludgeoned to death inside of the tent. Michelle, most likely, while she was still sleeping. Then Denise was blindfolded, mm. arms bound behind her back, and gagged with a special hand-sewn gag the killer had made himself. 
before being walked out into the forest alive, passing the counselor's tent along the way. Oh, that literally made my skin crawl. So scary and disturbing. Right. And sorry to put salt on your wounds, dear listeners and fellow freaks, but all three of the girls were found to have been sexually assaulted. And two of them had semen found inside of them during the autopsy. I said it was brutal in the beginning. Beside the bodies was a large red six-volt flashlight with the lens covered in plastic so that only a small sliver of light escaped. Inside the flashlight was a folded piece of newspaper used to keep the battery in place to stop it from jiggling. Parents were told an accident happened and the camp had to be evacuated. So the girls were bused from Camp Scott to Tulsa Girl Scout Magic Empire Council Headquarters. That's a mouthful right there. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Tulsa Girl Scout Magic Empire Council Headquarters. I don't know who named it that. The parents of Denise, Lori, and Michelle were told their daughters had died in an accident. And when word leaked out, there had been mysterious deaths. The other parents went into a panic, not knowing what was going on or if their children were safe. And the parents of Denise, Lori, and Michelle would all find out the truth of what had happened to their children, that they'd been brutally murdered on the news. Mm. It was discovered that the nylon rope used in the crime had been reported stolen from a nearby farm. The owner of the farm was questioned and very briefly became a suspect, but he had an airtight alibi. He'd been out of the area the night the murders happened, and he also passed a lie detector test. But though he'd been completely exonerated, newspapers still published his picture with the word slayer above it. Jeez. I know. Can you imagine? God damn. Especially in this like little community. The stress of the stigma, as well as prank calls and harassment from reporters, it put this poor guy in the hospital. Poor dude. I know, right? What's interesting to note is that it was discovered that whoever had done this crime had camped in a cave up in the hills above the farm. Then, on June 22nd, two brothers, hunting in the woods, came across a well-lived-in cave. And in it, authorities would find all kinds of evidence that linked to the killer. There was the same type of plastic material used to cover the lens of the flashlight. The glasses that had been pilfered from the counselor's tent. Remember I said he had stolen glasses and... The whole stealing glasses thing is really weird. We're going to get into it. And there was also the same exact newspaper that had been folded up and used to hold the battery in place in the flashlight. There was also a red pair of lace panties. And interestingly, two black and white photographs of women. Everyone wondered, who were these mysterious women? One of the men who wondered who these mysterious women could be was OSBI agent Harvey Pratt, who is the hero of our story today. A native of Oklahoma, Agent Pratt 
is a full-blood Cheyenne Arapaho, the great-grandson of scout, guide, interpreter, and Sand Creek Massacre survivor, Edmund Hurrier. And you can tell this is real life because no screenwriter or novelist is going to use the name Harvey Pratt for the Native American lawman who uses the magic and medicine of the old ways to track a killer. I don't know. I like the name Harvey Pratt. Sounds very noir. Right out of Dashiell Hammett novels. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I got to say, Agent Harvey Pratt is a hell of a guy. I love him. Right? So talk begins to go around about an escaped convict named Jean Leroy Hart, who'd escaped the Myers County Jail four years earlier. Hart had been a football star in high school, and all his teachers, coaches, and classmates remembered him as a very sweet guy. But Jean Leroy Hart took a bad turn after high school. A really bad turn. Jean had been convicted of the kidnapping and rape of two 19-year-old pregnant women. He somehow received parole for this heinous offense, but was then picked up on burglary charges, sending him back to prison where he'd have to serve his entire term of 305 years. But Hart was able to get his hands on a hacksaw in jail and actually sawed through the bars of his cell and escaped. And he'd been on the run for four years now. A lot of the talk about Hart possibly being involved with the Girl Scout murders was coming from Sheriff Pete Weaver, who had a personal grudge and vendetta against Hart since Hart had escaped from his jail under his watch. There were some very troubling aspects to his kidnapping and rape charges that seemed to coincide with the Girl Scout murders, too. During the abduction, he reportedly took the victim's eyeglasses and would wear them for periods. The eyeglass stuff is so creepy and weird. Right? And creepier yet, he also made these low, guttural, inhuman noises during mm -hmm. the rapes, similar to the sounds the counselors had reported hearing in the forest the night of the murders. Hart had left those kidnapped women to die, bound and gagged, with duct tape over their noses and mouth. He covered them in brush, basically burying them alive. But luckily, one of the women was able to squirm free and free her friend as well. What an ordeal. Man, yeah. Ugh. After the three Girl Scouts were found murdered, a huge search ensued. And they even flew in tracking dogs from Pennsylvania. And the press all dubbed these dogs the Wonder Dogs. Aww. When the OSBI agents started on the killer's trail with the dogs, a rumor went around that a local medicine man had put a curse on these Wonder Dogs. And the agents all laughed to themselves, all of them, that is. But Agent Harvey Pratt. Because Agent Harvey Pratt 
he knew things like that were no laughing matter. And evidently, he was right. Because shortly after this talk of a curse on the dogs by a local medicine man, one of the dogs collapsed, dead, for no apparent reason. It's crazy. Totally. Later, they said it was like heat prostration. And that's what they use as the official cause of death, but just fell over dead. And eventually, another of the dogs would go crazy and run into traffic. And it was struck by a car, killing it instantly. Mm, poor Wonder Dogs. How sad. Other odd things occurred as well. At one point, Agent Pratt said they were following the scent of the killer, hopped on the murderer's trail with the dogs, and they came to an open field where the dogs just stopped. They walked in circles for a few minutes, then sat down and refused to move, as if the person they were tracking had grown wings and taken to the sky, transformed into a hawk or an eagle. And despite himself, Agent Pratt said he was literally afraid of this killer's ability to shape change. One evening, Agent Pratt decided to smoke himself. He walked down to a creek and made a small fire where he set cedar boughs aflame and then lifted the boughs up, letting the lush white smoke pass over him as a means of cleansing his soul and purifying his spirit, as well as to provide clarity to his thoughts. As he prayed there beside the water, in the tradition of his ancestors, two other agents joined him, asking if he would smoke them as well, which he did. Pratt told the other agents he had a bit of strong medicine that had been given to him by a medicine man. And if he burned it in the fire, its smoke would go out into the world, bringing help and luck to their mission. So he did that, sprinkling his medicine on the fire and watching as it turned to smoke and was released to the four winds. Afterward, to commemorate the ceremony, the three men smoked tobacco together. All they had was a cigarette so they ripped off the filter to get it closer to a pure state, then lit the cigarette and passed it amongst themselves, inhaling deeply of the tobacco smoke. As soon as they arrived back at headquarters, they were told the mysterious photos found in the cave had been identified. It seemed as if the magic of burning the medicine had worked. Luck had found them. The photos were wedding pictures, taken by a guard at the prison, who moonlighted as a prison photographer. And they'd been developed by none other than escaped convict Jean Leroy Hart. They had their man. They knew, now, exactly who they were searching for. The hunt was truly on now. Soon, another farmer reported a man camping in a cave. Agent Pratt went to the scene. He found boot prints that matched perfectly to the bloody ones from the tent 
where the girls were murdered. And he immediately noticed the remnants of four small fires arranged in a half circle. Agent Pratt recognizes these small fires as part of a Native American ritual, four being a sacred number, the four fires representing the four seasons, the four directions of the wind, and the four colors used in ceremony. In the remnants of the fire, he saw the burnt ends of cedar boughs the killer had used to smoke himself. And on the cave floor were the filters of cigarettes, which the killer had ripped off to make the tobacco purer. Yes, the killer, it turns out, has been doing the exact same rituals that the agents had. Wow, that's just crazy. That that part right there, man, when I first heard that, it gave me a chill. I was like, no way. What are the odds? Yeah. Now, in Cherokee mysticism, traditionally medicine is tobacco that has been transformed by a medicine man. Cherokees call a medicine man a didana iski, which roughly translates as curer of them. And this is different from a sorcerer or witch, which they call a didana eski, which means a putter in and drawer out of them. So basically, what a medicine man does, he takes his thoughts, he takes his prayers, and he disseminates them into tobacco, transforming the tobacco into a medicine that holds the power of his prayers and thoughts. A medicine man can use both commercial tobacco, which they buy, or the ancient Nicotiana rustica, which usually has to be grown. Cherokees used to grow a lot of commercial tobacco, both chewing tobacco and smoking tobacco, for both ceremonies and pleasure, but apparently they grow little of it today. Nicotiana rustica, which they called Soligavali, or ancient tobacco, has grown exceedingly scarce. And because of its overwhelming nicotine content, it is only grown for healing and magic. Yet many Cherokee medicine men won't even admit to having a Nicotiana rustica plant, as they create medicine so powerful that they're seen as being used for evil purposes. And when it is grown by a medicine man, the ancient tobacco, sometimes called Aztec tobacco, isn't grown in a field or garden. Because if anyone other than the grower sees it growing, it will lose its power. It has to be hidden in secrecy in the woods under conditions that duplicate its wild, natural state. The seeds are planted in the winter on a sacred day in soil that has been prepared by having lightning-struck wood burned on it. If thunder or lightning should occur while the medicine man is planting it, that is an especially good omen. Since Sola Gavali is both very hard to come by, 
and has such great powers. Only a tiny pinch of it is needed. It is almost never used alone. But tobacco itself has no inherent magical powers. As I said, the medicine man must remake it into a medicine through a process the Cherokee call. And, all right, I'm just going to apologize right here because I'm sure I'm mispronouncing this, but Goviso Vichii, which means remade it. When it is remade, the tobacco is infused with supernatural authority and can be used magically. The principal factor in remaking tobacco is chanting or singing over it as it is rolled in the hand, either clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on what the desired results are. This transfers creative thought into the inert herb. The tobacco now has magical properties that are endowed with the generative force, the medicine man's mind. But these magical properties can be enhanced significantly. One way is for the medicine man to be fasting during the time the tobacco is remade. Also, dawn is held to be the juncture in day when the division between the natural and the supernatural is the most indistinct. And it is during this time that thought can be most easily transformed into magical energy. Therefore, tobacco is usually remade at this time. Conversely, though for evil purposes, the negating and de-energizing influences of dusk or midnight are desirable. Running water is a tremendous source of generative power, and many medicine men will work on the bank of a stream. There are some ceremonies where rippling or bubbling water is considered to be especially desirable, and others where the water is preferred to be still. If a very powerful magic is required, the medicine man will not only work beside the water, but will also wash with it and even bathe in it. If the ceremony is performed at dawn, the medicine man faces east, the sacred and success giving direction. And often, after the tobacco has been remade, it is held up to the light of the rising sun. But it is said that this is never done if the tobacco is to be used for a sinister purpose. Most of the chanted texts utilized in remaking tobacco are repeated four times, four being a very sacred number to the Cherokee. And if a medicine man were to perform the ceremony four times in a day, or even better, four days in a row, great power can be achieved. As long as it's sunny on each day, if it rains, they must begin the whole process again. Breath also contains a large amount of life force and personality, and much strength can be put into the medicine by blowing on it. Cedar leaves or cedar seeds are occasionally added to the tobacco, with shredded grapevine being added if it is prepared for the purpose of capturing the affections of a woman. Sometimes the medicine man may decide to have the little people or fairies of Cherokee folklore remake the tobacco. 
called the Yanwi Junsi. The tobacco is left where these tiny beings live, usually rocky or craggy places. The medicine man will know it has been remade when they find it moved from its original location. And now that we know a little bit about the magic and medicine of the Cherokee, and to hopefully I haven't butchered too much of the pronunciation. We didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> no, no, it was, it was a solid effort. We did our best. We did. We tried. Blame Google. Well, let's get back to our story because it gets wild. At this point, there are 40, over 40 FBI agents, the entire OSBI, the National Guard, the Highway Patrol, and over 600 local volunteer searchers looking for this guy, Gene Leroy Hart, using bloodhounds, the wonder dogs, helicopters, heat-seeking aircraft. It's become the largest manhunt in Southwest history. And after six months, they still cannot find him. Nothing. The locals, true to their outlaw-loving culture, begin to look at him as a folk hero. Many claim he's innocent and that he's being framed by Sheriff Weaver, who has a vendetta against him for escaping from his jail under his watch. And actually, there's a lot of evidence that points in that direction, including mismatched shoe sizes, smudged or mismatched fingerprints. And the biggest indicator of Hart's innocence in the local community's mind is that the semen found inside the victims had sperm in it, and Hart had had a vasectomy, which means his semen should have no sperm in it, and therefore he clearly could not have done it. Don't worry, folks. We'll be coming back to that tidbit later. Now, I just want to say, you know, I live in the Emerald Triangle of Northern California in Humboldt County, and I have seen a lot of love for outlaw culture. And support for outlaws, in particular, of course, weed growers, but others as well, who have sometimes been forced to take the law into their own hands. Sometimes a bit questionable, including a murder suspect who jumped in the river when cornered by sheriffs and was on the run for a long time for a killing considered, quote unquote, justified. People really love that guy. and He got a lot of support from the community. And uh, when these like convicts who do road detail, you know, you'll see them out there weed whacking on the sides of the highway. A couple of them escaped and the locals cheered them on. Now, it kind of cracks me up because most communities, they would be terrified of escaped convicts. But in Southern Humboldt, everyone's like, go, go, go. (laughs) And uh, like the Cookson Hills in Oklahoma. Southern Humboldt, California, is a place with a long history of outlaw culture. But I've never seen support for a convicted rapist. I mean, regardless of whether this guy Hart committed the Girl Scout murders, because a lot of people were saying at the time that he was innocent of the Girl Scout murders, he was convicted of raping and sodomizing two pregnant teenagers and leaving them to die, basically burying them alive. So, you know, just not cool. That's not really the folk hero I want to be supporting. I'm just saying. 
Right. That's what got me is like, okay, maybe he didn't do the Girl Scout murders, but we know for a fact that he was convicted of some pretty awful other shit. It's, it's, yeah. Okay. Totally brutal. Um, but let's get back to our hero, Agent Harvey Pratt. Pratt goes deep undercover into the notorious backwoods of the Cookson Hills, bringing his younger brother for backup. Together, they search the desolate Ozark Hills for the wanted man, gathering clues, seeking answers. They go to a medicine man who tells them that Hart's medicine is so powerful, he is in fact able to shapeshift into a bird or cat. And that is why they haven't caught him yet. The medicine man, he asks for four bullets from each of the revolvers. He puts them into a bowl, rubbing a magic potion on them, then gives them back, telling them to keep those bullets wrapped in a cloth in their pocket as a talisman, that as long as they carry that talisman, they'd be unable to miss when firing a gun, and that their shots would only hit the guilty. He gave them a medicine to hide themselves and a medicine to track. And Agent Pratt, he says he used all this medicine in his hunt. He says he sprinkled some of the tracking medicine onto the heart's tracks so that he would never lose him, so that they would be bound together spiritually, hunter, and pray. One night, deep in the forest, as he lay beside his brother, staring intently into the leaping flames of a small fire, focusing his mind on his prey, feeling the medicine leading him to the fugitive, from nowhere, a cat sprang onto his chest, hissing into his face before leaping away and scurrying back into the woods. <laughs> Eventually, oh, thank you. Special effects by Maddie. Eventually, 10 months after the murders, an informant speaks up. A woman who claimed Hart had been taken in by an old medicine man named Sam Pigeon. After a lot of pressure from Agent Pratt, the informant finally gave the location of Sam Pigeon, a cabin deep in the hills of Cookson. On April 6th, 1978, with the scent of the chase in his nose, Agent Harvey Pratt and a force of seven other OSBI agents close in on the cabin in the woods. As OSBI agents go to the front of the property in marked vehicles, Pratt comes up to the backside of the mountain in an unmarked car and then takes off through the woods towards the cabin where he catches Hart trying to flee through a back door as agents storm the front of the cabin. Gene darts back inside, where agents finally corner him and get him in cuffs. Agent Harvey Pratt goes to Gary Leroy Hart, now laying face down on the ground in handcuffs. And Harvey Pratt taps each of his feet to complete the hunt and free the tracking medicine 
he had used. He's found his prey and wouldn't need the medicine anymore. Disturbingly, Hart is wearing a pair of women's glasses. It's, it's so friggin' creepy. He's like this big old guy in these like little like fancy women's glasses. And it's like there's something he's trying to do something supernatural there. It, it reminds me of Twin Peaks or something. I don't know. I'll show I'll put a picture of it up on Instagram. Yeah, that's a very Twin Peaks to me for some reason, too. Anyway, he's lifted onto his feet and one of the OSBI agents asks him, did you kill those little girls? And cryptically, he answers, you'll never pin it on me. The Cherokee Nation Tribal Council donated $12,000 to Jean Leroy Hart's defense, not because they thought he was innocent, but only because they thought it was the only way they could guarantee him a fair trial. Well, remember, a lot of the people in the community still considered him innocent of the murders and thought he'd been framed by the sheriff. They accused the sheriff being on a vendetta, which technically was true. They also accused him of planting evidence, in particular, a tiny corn cob pipe and mirror that had belonged to a camp counselor that hadn't been found during the initial search of Pigeon's cabin, but was found later. And the sheriff may in fact have planted that evidence. Those items were claimed to have been in police evidence and witnesses testified to that. But to me, even if the sheriff did plant that evidence, that doesn't make Hart innocent. It just means that the sheriff is such a scumbag that he's trying to frame an already guilty guy, which you see happen out there. It didn't help matters that Leroy was quite charismatic in front of the camera or that rumors started that the pregnant teenagers from his original arrest had been trying to escape their husbands and had gone with Leroy voluntarily. Which just, you know, victim blaming. He tied them up. He put them into his trunk and left them buried in the woods for dead. There's nothing voluntary about that. Absolutely not. And March 9th, 1979, the trial begins. And right away, it goes bad for the prosecution. It's revealed that the district attorney, Sid Wise, had signed a book contract where he agreed to share case information once the trial concluded. So he was taken off the case and it went to Buddy Felice. Just a rocky start. They say that uh, during the trial, there was a minimum of four different medicine men in the courtroom at all times and that you could smell the smoke they were using as medicine. But uh, I mean, I don't know if they were like on different sides, like of their beliefs, like battling it out. Like if some were hired or brought there by Hart and the defense or others brought there by the OSBI for the prosecution or if they were just there on their own. I don't know. But it was definitely a heavy atmosphere, a lot of uh, intense energy. So the trial gets underway. And it's win after win for the defense. Hart's previous conviction for kidnapping, sodomy, and rape 
was ruled inadmissible and couldn't be presented in court. And he came up with a solid alibi of where he was the night of the murders. He claimed he'd been with his uncle in Tulsa. Unfortunately, his uncle had since died and couldn't corroborate the claims. And there was also no physical proof showing him to have been in Tulsa that night either. But he did technically have an alibi. Now we come back to the semen. So this is 1970s science going on. But doctors were able to say the killer was a non-white, possibly Native American man with O blood, all of which fit Hart, but that there was sperm in the semen and Hart had had a vasectomy. So he would have no sperm, irrefutable proof of his innocence, right? Case solved. But the prosecution discovers that he'd only had a partial vasectomy. The surgeon screwed up, and he was producing sperm. Not only that, but because of his vasectomy, the sperm he produced were deformed and mostly not viable. And the sperm in the bodies of the Girl Scouts were also deformed and mostly not viable. Never trust a man with deformed sperm. (laughs) Sorry. But uh, regardless, the defense was able to cast enough doubt as well as insinuate enough bias from the sheriff's department that the jury, after deliberating for 7.5 hours, found him not guilty, and he was acquitted of all charges, his supporters cheering as the victim's family sat in disbelief. But the point was kind of moot anyway. He still had to return to prison to serve his 305-year term for his previous rapes, burglaries, and prison escapes. So he's still not going anywhere. A local Cherokee medicine man named Crying Wolf. I'm sorry, I'm just going to say this. That is such a badass name. It really is. And if this was a fictional story written by some screenwriter... Pratt's name would be Agent Crying Wolf. Agent Crying Wolf solves the barbaric crime. Okay, <laughs> so anyway. Well, diversion there. <laughs> Local medicine man, Crying Wolf, who had been working with OSBI agent Wilkerson throughout the case, he conducted an ancient ceremony on the courthouse grounds one night to find the ultimate truth of the case. And in a vision... He saw that whoever was lying would soon die, and the letter four would be involved in this death. Less than two months later, on the 4th of June, 1979, Harry Hart would drop dead of a heart attack in the McAllister State Prison at the age of only 35. Young man, on the 4th of June, I don't know. It's this whole thing. It's there's so much. I don't know. You can call it coincidence if you want, but it's just steeped in magic. It is. This may seem like the end of the story of the magic myth and medicine of the 1977 Girl Scout murders, but there's a little more. In 2022, 
it was revealed that new DNA testing showed that Hart was nearly certainly the killer. While the DNA wasn't absolutely conclusive, it left very little chance of his innocence. Oh, <clears throat> surprise. Oh, and our, our hero, Harvey Pratt, he went on to serve in law enforcement for 40 years, becoming an expert in composite drawings and post-mortem reconstruction, assisting in thousands of arrests and hundreds of identifications of unidentified human remains throughout America. Oh, and you know I love this. He's also become an award-winning artist. In fact, the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian chose Pratt's Warrior's Circle of Honor, a 12-foot-tall sculpture of a circle and drum, as the centerpiece of the National Native American Veterans Memorial. And more recently, he's come here to Humboldt County, California, to the Hoopa Reservation to assist in their Bigfoot research. Yes, Whoa. he's a Bigfoot researcher. And you can even buy his Bigfoot art on the internet. How cool is that? He truly is an amazing guy. I love this guy. Yeah, Harvey Pratt. What a life. Harvey Pratt. Hey illustrious career and that's it thanks for listening fellow freaks it was quite the journey it really was it was from the mystical to the brutal please be sure to join us next week for more hey we want to hear from you got a case you think we should cover did we get something wrong did we mispronounce a lot of words in this episode? We did. Or did? Or, or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next week. <laughs>